the farming program with Araquit Steel Stockholders, Withambrook Industrial Estate Grantham. For all your steel needs, call their friendly experts. Growing companion crops with oilseed rape. Good idea? Could it help with cabbage stem flea beetle? I've been talking to people who, like me, have tried pretty much every companion crop there is with all seed rape as to whether we think it's worthwhile um, from a cabbage stem flea beetle perspective. With thoughts on carbon calculators, eating better and the true cost of cheap food, what does the CLA want from the next government and what's on at next week's Low Carbon Ag Show? As an event, we're providing insight and guidance on environmental best practice, clean energy generation, and the integration of low-carbon solutions into uh, agricultural and rural businesses. Plus, after another wet week, yes, another one, the forecast, the markets and the week's farming news. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. It does look a bit drier this week, but then again, I've said that before and look where it got me. Hello, I'm Steve Orchard. In the news this week, the NFU held its annual conference and said goodbye with a standing ovation to Minette Batters as president after 10 years. The new NFU senior team is now led by Minette's replacement, Tom Bradshaw, who steps up unopposed from deputy and we'll be getting to know more about Tom very soon once the dust has settled. David Exwood was voted in as Tom Tom's replacement and at Vice President we now have Rachel Hallos who runs an upland farm with a herd of pedigree Salas cattle and a flock of Scottish blackface sheep in West Yorkshire. We wish the three of them and of course Minette all the best for the future. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is backing a Clarkson clause to allow farm shops, etc., with minimal planning, and at the NFU conference announced new farm support worth nearly £430 million. He told delegates, I've got your back, and said £220 million will be injected into the future focused technology and productivity schemes to help farmers invest in automation. Funding will also be available for energy measures such as rooftop solar and, interestingly, to, quote, safeguard land for food production, end quote. Although exactly what he meant by that wasn't explained. And given the comments many have raised about that subject on this programme, I'd like to know more. Farmers are being urged to share your views on plans to roll out not-for-EU labels on food products. There's a lot of concern, which I have to say I share, that such labels would just cause confusion and misconceptions about the quality of the food. The plans were brought in as part of the concessions secured with the EU under the Windsor Framework Agreement, which sets out post-Brexit trade arrangements for Northern Ireland. A recent survey showed that almost one in five British consumers are less likely to buy food labelled not for EU. You can have your say on the DEFRA website. And congratulations to Jones Foods, whose vertical farm in Scunthorpe I visited a couple of years ago on the opening of their new Gloucestershire facility, from where I'll be reporting for the farming programme very soon. So when's the next election going to be then? It's definitely less than a year away. Perhaps we should start a sweep. What does the CLA, the Country Land and Business Association, want from the next government? They published CLA Missions, their six main asks for rural business. Acting Regional Director Mark Riches is with us. Mark, what are you looking for from whichever party or parties form the next administration? Um, it's important to say that the rural economy is, is 19% less productive than the national average. So if we were to close that gap, um, this would add an extra $43 billion to the national economy. And I think we all agree that could be hugely beneficial. So with the election coming up, um, and as 
part of this, the CLA has launched six very clear missions that we think any political party who wants to be elected um, needs to get behind. The first of those, obviously, is profitable and sustainable farming. We are at the forefront of agricultural best practice and we produce some of the best food in the world. And we very clearly need to push this uh, to the fore. Affordable homes, uh, the CLA produced the... um, Sustainable Villages report a few years ago and has been updated since and we highlighted the number of villages that are deemed to be unsustainable and because of the lack of properties being built on a small scale and within those villages. Mission three is tackling rural crime. I, I, I was talking to Lincolnshire Police, in fact, only last week and ha- had a good chat with their police and crime commissioner about the issues that and the, the rural cr- criminal activity that blights our countryside, everything from hair coursing to fly tipping to theft. Mission four, delivering economic growth in rural areas. I think anyone in in a rural area will feel that they are perhaps second class citizens when it comes to delivering rural growth. And the planning system is a big difeller of rural growth and something that, that really seriously needs to be addressed. Mission five, responsible access. You know, there's more and more talk about the need for access for the general public when it comes to sort of mental health and physical health and well-being. But obviously that has to be on a responsible basis and it has to be has to be suitably managed, both from the point of view of, of agriculture and also of, of conservation as well. And then finally, Mission 6 is a fully connected countryside. The fact that a lot of rural areas are remote um, means that if anything, you know, broadband speeds um, and connectivity are in fact even more important. So making, making sure the countryside is fully connected when it comes to broadband but also when it comes to um things like electricity infrastructure as well whether that be so people can put solar panels on their roof um or whether it's for the charging of electric vehicles so there's, there's sort of a huge diversity of things that we are calling for um but they are slimmed down into these six core kind of principles core missions that we feel any political party wants to get elected needs to get behind and they're all key things to the rural economy let's face it there's not these these aren't just pie in the sky dreams these are all key to actually the rural economy and being successful and being able to deliver what we need to to deliver and you've had conversations i know with different political parties has there been any indication from any of them that you're likely to get these six desires or is it the usual well yes we'll look into that has any have you got any commitments out of anybody Absolutely. Very good question. Um, what we've tried to do within these missions is to give is to give six very clear asks. And and these are these are not, as you quite correctly said, these are not pie in the sky. These are not these are not a list of things we'd like to have in an ideal world. These are six things that we deem to be essential for the rural economy, for the rural environment and for those who inhabit those areas. And um, so this definitely isn't just a pie in the sky ask. Um, and what we've tried to very clearly do is not just set out the things we want, but the way we believe they can be achieved so that's everything from from sort of the actions we need to take and we very clearly listed out actions but also these specific bits of wording in specific bits of legislation that we feel need to be addressed this has gone out relatively recently to to politicians of all parties or or perspective prospective politicians of all parties as well and i think it's fair to say that uh, there's a lot of interest in what it is we're asking for and i think it's difficult for any politician to argue against it you know it's it's, it's all very fair stuff um, and over the next few months, in the lead up to, to the general election, we will certainly be working with politicians in order to um, get further c- commitments from them. So as yet, um, sort of no firm uh, commitments, but we are fully expecting commitments to be forthcoming. And we will be speaking to politicians to make sure that um, we get them to sign on the dotted line, so to speak, in advance of any general election.
Yeah, because £43 billion prospective extra money generated uh, to the national economy has got to be taken seriously, hasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, these six missions are very clearly set out the ways we believe that 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 extra um, contribution to the economy could be realised. And from a point of view of a government, you know, that's a large amount of money in the rural economy and a very large amount in tax that people will pay as well. So, you know, it's 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 of interest to government, not just from a uh, from the welfare of those within the rural areas point of view, but actually from the point of view of taxation income as well, that this is a huge opportunity for the government to achieve on multiple fronts. Do you feel that the focus of government, not just the current one, but governments for a long time has been too far aimed at the urban economy, shall we say, rather than the rural economy? That seems to have had an awful lot of money poured into it and for good reason in a lot of cases. But do you think that's been too much of the focus over uh, the rural economy? I think it's fair to say that um, most people within rural areas would agree that they feel um, politics is now too urban centric, whether that, that in fact you, you could you could sort of crystallise that even more in states become too London centric. Um, I think that's that, that's probably a very fair argument. I think there's a lot of disquiet within the rural community that feel they've been taken for granted. So in that, I, I don't wouldn't necessarily say that they've been actively um, sort of prejudiced against, but they've sort of been ignored and forgotten. I know we're not getting political, but largely speaking, rural areas are conservative voting. Um, and I think it's fair to say that that con- successive conservative governments have taken that vote for granted. And I think the polling that we've seen coming out recently um, is showing that actually people within the rural areas are becoming far less fixed in their political views and their political ways, and they are far more likely to adjust their vote um, depending on the party that they feel is going to give them the best outcome. Um, so so I think we're going to see a very interesting time um, with regards to how the sort of the, the political vote and the vote goes in rural areas. So um, you know, we would encourage them to get behind these 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 missions. Get out, talk to people, find out what the concerns, what the issues, what the the future hopes of of the rural communities are, and work with them to get behind that because they have a lot of very willing people who are very keen to push things forward, and they need that kind of political help, that political stimulus to enable them to do that. Ignore the rural vote at your peril. All right, Mark, thank you for that. Let's keep an eye on how things go. It's going to be, as you say, a very interesting few months. Mark Riches, thank you. Thanks, Steve. Very much appreciated. That's CLA Acting Regional Director Mark Riches. What does the NFU want from the next government? We'll find out soon on the Farming Programme. Another big farming show is on the horizon. The Low Carbon Ag Show returns to Stonely next week. For a sneak preview, we're joined by show founder David Jacobmeyer. David, give us a bit of a flavour of what we can enjoy at the show next week. Sure, happy to. Uh, the Low Carbon Agriculture Show is returning on the 6th and 7th of March, uh, once again at Stonely Park in Warwickshire. Uh, it's being held in partnership with the NFU and the CLA. And as an event, we're providing insight and guidance on environmental best practice, clean energy generation, and the integration of low carbon solutions into uh, agricultural and rural businesses. So there's very much a focus on the low carbon side of things, which is a a topic that was discussed quite a bit at the Lincolnshire Farming Conference recently and was certainly getting an awful lot of nodding heads in the audience. 
Yes, well, it doesn't surprise me. As we've all noted and has been reported upon in the mainstream press many times, um, weather conditions, bad weather conditions are continuing to increase in both number and ferocity, a clear indication of climate change. Of course, farms see this firsthand with the, the poor businesses that have been underwater for a large percentage of the last few months, for example. So as an event, what we do is we provide the insight and guidance that farmers and landowners need in order to see how they can help arrest the worst uh, effects of climate change, improve environmental performance, whilst also making sure that they boost their commercial viability as clearly we're not expecting any farmers to do this and uh, be out of pocket at the same time. No, you wouldn't get an awful lot of supporters um, of the cause for do, doing that at all. And as ever, the, In any walk of life, I think <laughs> it's fair to say. <laughs> as ever, the show is on over two days. Exhibitors, I guess, will be the same both days. So who have you got coming this year? So we've got quite a haul of exhibitors with um, organisations covering the clean energy sector from uh, installers of uh, solar PV, uh, biomass, uh, wind energy schemes through to developers, also um, financiers, related planners. Um, so we always try to uh, bring in the, the full sector and representation from all facets of it. Um, we also have uh, a number of uh, biodiversity advisors, carbon farming specialists, uh, waste management experts, uh, emission control experts, offering advice and or technologies to help uh, reduce emissions and aid in, in uh, wider sustainability plans. Uh, we've also got um, providers of low and zero carbon uh, vehicles from quad bikes, through to the latest in electric vans from Ford, as an example. Um, there'll be test drives available throughout the show for those. There are also a number of innovations on show, such as drones and robotics, that are all designed to help boost productivity, but in a sustainable fashion. So we've got a very busy couple of days, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing many farmers there throughout. Plenty to have a look round, plenty of people to talk to, and once again a full programme of speakers at uh, the Low Carbon Agriculture Show. Who have you got uh, standing up on stage this time? Absolutely, yes. We've got over 100 speakers in the dedicated programme that sits alongside the exhibition. We have a, a number of different sessions ranging from carbon farming through to biodiversity enhancements or health management a look at the ways to get the most out of energy that's being generated and or used, an in-depth session on, on biomass focusing on aspects from agroforestry through to the crop options and, and uses and, and production of biochar as well and, and the energy plus environmental benefits that such a, a solution can have. In terms of individuals, we have, in no particular order, the uh, Renewable Energy and Climate Change Advisor from the NFU, Dr Jonathan Skurlock, Mr. Chris Hune, these days the chairman of the Anaerobic Digestion and Biogas, Bioresources, I should say, association. Um, we have representation from uh, Solar Energy UK, Renewable UK. There's representation from the National Trust, chief executives of the Soil Association, the Renewable Energy Association, LEAF, DEFRA are heavily involved in this year's show with their team on hand throughout in the exhibition as well as representation in the conference such as their head of climate mitigation 
science who's looking at a who's really getting into detail in terms of uh, emission control solutions those that are proposed and those that are being applied currently um, we have a number of farmers and uh, estate owners taking part throughout the program who are sharing their experience hopefully meaning that uh, those visiting can take away some of their experience and apply it to their own situation great opportunities to to see and to listen and to get involved and test things and there's a social element to the show isn't there there is indeed yes the show has always attracted a number of like-minded individuals from across the agricultural and rural communities so farmers and landowners that are interested in generating clean energy or, or boosting their business's environmental performance, reducing emissions, perhaps uh, boosting productivity, but as I say, sustainably. And because we welcome back so many familiar faces each year, as well as a whole raft of, of new visitors looking to uh, learn more, it very much does turn into a social and, and networking environment in addition to the very many opportunities that are available via the exhibition and the insight in the programme. Now, do we need to book tickets? How much is this going to cost us to get in? Where do we go for more information? So the best news is that tickets are free and they can be organised via the website, uh, which is lowcarbonagricultureshow.co.uk. Tickets can be registered for the 6th or the 7th or both. And, uh, yeah, we're really looking forward to this year's event and, and hearing from the farming audience as far as their um, experiences in this area over the last year. David, thank you for all the information. I'm looking forward to getting there uh, on at least one of the days, if not both, and enjoying this year's Low Carbon Agriculture Show. Thanks for joining us on the farming programme, David. Absolute pleasure, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Let's have a walk through the crops now with independent agronomist Sean Sparling and talk about growing companion crops with oilseed rape. Can doing that reduce cabbage stem flea beetle? Morning, Sean. It's been another wet one. Yes, morning, Steve. Another 43 mil of rain in the last seven days. You wonder when it's going to stop. That takes February 24 to 111 mil for me. So already the wettest February I've recorded in over 20 years and still four days to go. If you add that to the 47 mil we took in January, that's the wettest start to any year I've had in over 20 years. But if you add that to the 531 mil I took from the 10th of September to the 31st of December, and we're so little able to have been done on the land thanks to that wet back end, you could already see that the spring is starting to concertina up into what will be a very short but incredibly busy spring once it does finally dry up enough to get on. So that's 689 mil of rain in the last 157 days. That's way more than my annual average rainfall in less than half a year, in 22 and a half weeks to be precise. Not many drying days in that 157 days either. 15 consecutive dry days in January, but they were cold and frosty too, not really drying, rather it turned it more sticky because of that frost coming out so really no wonder this is going to be short and sweet from an agronomy point of view Steve because absolutely nothing's happened on the land other than it's got a bit wetter in the last seven days no real frost about either and there's only been minus three or below nine times you know since the beginning of November and only four times so far this year and bearing in mind we need temperatures of minus seven or below in order to start seriously impacting the Mises Persky population it does start to become clear that we're going to need 
all the help we can get this season with the sugar beet. So too early to say for sure, and I have no insider knowledge from Rothamsted or BBRO, but it would seem to me that it's been too mild this month and last for the thymothoxin derogation not to be triggered. It's only been cold enough five times since 1965 that it wouldn't have been triggered, but that decision is going to be taken on the 1st of March, which is Friday. So a couple of sunny days in the last seven or so, and with that sunshine, the crops really started to green up as the chlorophyll fluoresce. Soil temperatures crept up as well, 8.4 degrees at 8 centimetres on Wednesday lunchtime, thanks to a lack of frost and these odd warm and mid-teen temperature days. So the crops are starting to think about moving. Very little nitrogen deficiency showing up bizarrely. These soils are clearly mineralising and releasing nitrogen, despite all of the overwinter losses they must have suffered. It has to be mineralisation because most farms haven't been able to get on and put any bag nitrogen on. And because it looks likely to be the end of this month or even into next before conditions allow us to travel, then it's going to be 60 to 80 kilograms per hectare of nitrogen on the winter wheat, winter barley. That's going to be the order of the day. But speak to your advisor and discuss that one because little and often is going to be the best approach, as I've said before. These cereals have got very poor, shallow root systems in the main. So you'll have to account for any likely losses in your application discussion. So the forecast definitely looking a bit drier, brighter, albeit a bit cool, frost-free though on the whole. So perhaps we can start to dream of better, drier, warmer, springier things. The less cabbage stem flea beetle ridden, pigeon ravaged, hair chomp fields of oilseed rope starting to green up quite noticeably by the day. Still time to deal with things like mayweed, thistle, sow thistle, groundsel with straight clopyrrolid. The buds are developing in the more forward bits now and they're very easy to find but that upward movement won't happen for a few weeks yet. There's also corvetto which is clopyrrolid plus haloxifen methyl for cranes mill control and you've got clopic which is clopyrrolid plus picloram if you've got cleavers to deal with don't forget by the way there is a three-year label restriction for planting all following crops other than cereals or oilseed rape after picloram so make sure you are aware of that and cleavers also need to be actively growing for picloram to work so if the cleavers are blue they need to be greening up so soil temperatures need to be above eight degrees or so so make sure that you're going to kill them if you go for it and of course as soon as the conditions allow get that first hit of nitrogen and sulfur on. Sean, last week a report was published by Rothamsted Research that seemed to indicate that the presence of companion crops was beneficial to oilseed rape in terms of reducing cabbage stem flea beetle. Thoughts? I've been talking to people who, like me, have tried pretty much every companion crop there is with oilseed rape as to whether we think it's worthwhile um, from a cabbage stem flea beetle perspective. And I really still don't think there's a straight yes or no answer to be applied to that question. I've tried everything from bursine clover and buckwheat, coriander, pretty much you name it, we've tried it. On some sites they work and we get reduced levels of cabbage stem flea beetle. On others, we may as well not are bothered. Long stubble seems to make a big difference. The flea beetle just get in in their pinging about and I think it's as simple as that and also the one thing which does seem to deter that initial damage from adults is the use of digestate and slurries but ultimately the most important thing is getting the crop in up and away and with sufficient moisture to keep it going so that it doesn't struggle in those early stages but then you fall back into the catch-22 of cabbage stem flea beetle if you drill it too early you get so many generations of larvae which then go on to wipe it out in the spring if you're unlucky if you drill it too late into September it grows so 
so slowly that the adult flea beetle annihilate it before it's got a chance to get going. So rape's now one of those crops, I think, that will be seen as just too high a risk for many people going forward. We've certainly lost an awful lot once again this year to cabbage stem flea beetle, whether they had companion crops or not, whether we applied slurry or not. And we can't go on growing crops where keeping your fingers crossed is the best approach. So sadly, fortune does not necessarily favour the brave when it comes to oilseed rape. Yellow rust, pretty easy to find in winter wheat. In a few varieties, you wouldn't necessarily expect to see it in either. But remember that seedling and early season yellow rust doesn't necessarily end up as a big issue as the crop starts to grow and mature. Way too soon to be thinking about fungicides and growth regs in these conditions anyway. And remember, respond to what you see in the field. Respond to the conditions. It's not a calendar date thing. T0, for example, it's a growth stage, growth stage 30 historically. And growth stage 30, in case you've forgotten, is when the top of the basal node to the tip of the developing ear in the lead tiller is a centimetre. So we're nowhere near that yet. And it's very important that the crop is actually there for things like Trinexapac ethyl growth regulators in particular. I haven't found anything remotely close to growth stage 30, even in the stuff that was drilled in mid-September. So map it and plan for it, but it's way too soon to do anything about it. So hopefully a bit drier now going forward. Let's see what the next seven days bring. Thanks as ever, Sean. We'll see what the markets have done this week and see what the weather is going to do. Plus hear from author, ag consultant and soil microbiologist and excellent speaker at the recent Lincolnshire Farming Conference, Neil Fuller, on the true cost of cheap food and more. The Farming Programme with our equipped steel stockholders with Umbrook Industrial Estate Grantham, supplying the region for over 40 years. This is the Farming Programme podcast. I'm Steve Orchard. Neil Fuller has been around agriculture for nearly four decades. He's author of the Carbon Farming Manual and technical lead for the Good Soil Guide, an online reference and knowledge sharing platform for the Sustainable Landscapes Initiative sponsored by Yorkshire Water. He discussed sustainable landscapes at the recent Lincolnshire Farming Conference and he and I had a chat after his presentation. You quoted some statistics during your presentation which were quite scary, including the fact that half of GDP is at risk from global warming. The cost of fixing that is actually less than destroying that. And also that farming has a big part to play in the problem and the solution. But when you asked very few of the audience knew their carbon footprint. Did that surprise you? Unfortunately, it doesn't surprise me. One of the challenges is that that it's a numbers game and we have to look at where those numbers, carbon numbers, come from. And there are so many different carbon calculators, so many different approaches, it's really confusing. So the advice really has been just sit and wait. Somewhere, somehow, someone is going to tell you, use this tool instead of that tool. So don't worry about it, let's just wait, just wait, just wait. What's happening is that, for example, if you're a farmer and you're growing malting barley, you might be passing that on to a maltster who's passing that on to a brand, and the brand might turn around and say, I've really got to know the farm carbon emissions, I'd like all that using this particular tool. So some of the brands, some of the initiatives are actually saying, we're going to help you with your choice of carbon calculator, you generate the numbers, Let's have a look at what's going on. It is confusing and it's no surprise at all that farmers are not doing their carbon numbers. The trouble is there's a little bit of urgency now that we do know what those carbon numbers are because it's really valuable from the farm's point of view. And it's valuable and it's the 
purchasers of the farm produce, be that, be that a supermarket or, or a bakery or whatever, that are needing to know these numbers and demanding to know these numbers now. Uh, and is this really the, what you refer to as the hidden cost of cheap food? To an extent, yes. I, I do think there's been a real focus on cost and a real downward pressure on farming to keep the cost of the ingredients that we grow as low as possible. My worry is that actually takes the emphasis off value. And the commentary earlier was about, you know, do we need to eat as much? Are we overeating? Are we over-consuming? If we actually increase the nutritional density of foods, could we eat less in terms of volume? Would that mean that farming actually is doing a better job, not just in terms of efficiency and productivity, but in supporting human health and well-being? And, and you look at the statistics and you think, look, you know, the National Health Service is spending an enormous amount of money treating food-related disorders. And in part, we need to look at food quality. And in part, we need to look at production systems that generate that. But while, while farmers are under a downward pressure, constant downward pressure, to keep the whole thing as low as possible in terms of what leaves the farm gate, it's got to be a really low, really low cost. There's no real incentive and no real flexibility to invest in different ways of planting, different types of soil management, different ways of managing the environment that would give us the boost, the gain, just in terms of income, but also in terms of food and food quality, that actually the entire community needs. And the neat bit about it is when you start putting food as the major lever for climate change, everybody is engaged because everybody eats and it takes it out of the brand's hands and it takes it out of government regulation it actually puts it into the decision making of everybody and that i think is really empowering do we actually need i'll rephrase that do we actually have to reduce emissions we've always got this balance of yield and quality and farm performance is it actually necessary to reduce emissions? Well, it's an in, that's an interesting one. Carbon dioxide that we talk about as an as a emissions driver, carbon dioxide is an essential part of photosynthesis. You know, if, you, if we were to grow a 10 tonne a hectare wheat crop, it would need to pull the carbon out of a stack of air four and a half kilometres high just to get enough carbon to grow the 10 tonnes of wheat. The important bit from the wheat plant of your point of view is that actually most of that carbon is coming out of the ground through biological activity, not out of the air. So the initial bit, carbon, is it dangerous? Well, it's an essential part of what we do. The slightly scary bit is that the accumulative carbon in the atmosphere has an ability to change the climate. And that, we've got loads of geological evidence to show what's going on. Now, the, the culprit would be fossil fuels. So fossil fuels represent carbon that was in the atmosphere a long time ago, was caught, put in the ground, stored. We're now releasing it back into the atmosphere quite quickly, a lot faster than it was drawn down. And the implication is that that is going to push us back into a climate that was more suitable when that carbon first came out of the atmosphere. When that carbon first came out of the atmosphere, the Isle of Skye was a tropical island. So the climate did change, but the climate's always changing. Do we really need to reduce emissions? I think the answer is yes. I think we need to focus on it because actually, if we'd had this conversation two years ago, you'd have probably been able to get an answer from me that said, well, I do it because I believe in it, but the rest of the world thinks I'm crazy. Now, 
the rest of the world is beginning to say this is imperative and it's it's really shining a light on farming to say you know what you're not the big baddies in this you're actually the ones that can solve this and you can solve it one loaf of bread and one pint of beer at a time and i think that's fantastic you talked about carbon per hectare and carbon per tonne it seems maybe confusing to an awful lot of people that you can reduce carbon per hectare but by doing that you actually increase carbon per tonne yeah it's it's one of those things we've got to be really really aware of emissions reductions is not input reductions whatever we do to get our emissions down we cannot compromise yield or quality if we do somebody's going to go without food so that's not an option as far as i'm concerned when we look at the emissions, emissions per hectare, they are what's known as absolute. So a hectare has these emissions attached to it. If we grow 10 tonnes of wheat, we can divide that emission per hectare by those tonnes, and each tonne that then goes into making a loaf of bread carries a tenth of that one hectare with it. If we grow 15 tonnes, that carbon footprint per tonne has gone down. The carbon per hectare has stayed the same. The issue with reducing inputs is, supposing we cut our nitrogen by half. Now, I'm working with some farmers in Ireland. If if you cut the nitrogen or the fungicides in their wheat crops, their yield penalties are massive because their yield capability is high, but their disease pressure is massive. If we cut our nitrogen by half, we might cut our yield here in the eastern counties by two or three tonnes, maybe more per hectare. So if the yield drop is more significant than the emissions drop, our emissions per hectare can come down, but our emissions per tonne go up. And from a supply chain point of view, they're dealing with tonnes, not hectares. So we've got to be really astute with regard to what we do and how we do it. Now the neat bit, now the science-based targets has come into play, the neat bit is that actually our fungicides, our fertilisers, our fuels, everything is on this road to zero emissions which means that actually it won't be our decision quite so much in terms of what we do because all the inputs that we use will be low carbon and that will give us a real advantage come meeting our targets in 2030. Finally Neil a lot of what we need to do requires action requires positive action by farmers what are the biggest barriers to farmers actually taking the necessary action i think the first barrier is disempowerment i think you think it's the fact that actually you look at this and don't believe that you as an individual can have a, a role have a part to play have an impact and that again is where you change the emphasis and talk about food everybody has a part to play from the farmer's point of view do i wait for the government to tell me what to do do i wait for an incentive through sfi do i wait for a payment or a premium from the supply chain that takes what i grow Well, probably all of the above. The difficulty is moving because you believe it's right into a new type of crop management, a new type of soil management. The risk is on you. The knowledge base is on you. The technical gap is on you. And that's quite a scary, scary place to be. What we need to be doing is to say, how do we de-risk that transition? How do we help you? And that's where schemes like you've heard about today from Janet, with the sustainable farming incentive and other brand-based incentives are saying to farmers, let us empower you. 
you come on the journey with us because we can't make bread, we can't make beer, we can't feed our children without you. We can't cool down the planet. And actually, when the science-based targets came out in September of 22, it created a wave of panic in corporate boardrooms around the world because anybody engaged in food and drink at a big level looked into their own emissions pot, saw the farming bit and said, well, who are they? And what do they do? And will they stop it, please? And they no engagement with individual farmers. Well, if you've no engagement, it's really difficult to encourage anybody to do anything positive. So although it's this transition feels scary, we've gone into a post-Brexit, there's going to be lots of different changes to farm support, and we've got environmental crisis, etc., etc., etc. Actually, going through that transition can be de-risked, and the government is showing that it can help with that. Voluntary initiatives are showing they can really help with that. And I think farming actually has a really, really bright future. The difficulty is a lot of farmers feel the challenge is too great. They don't have the power to act. And in, in a lot of cases, it's quite hopeless. Farming is a lonely, difficult, dangerous job. And unless you come to an event like this and get supported by people that are either already taking steps along the journey or want to come with you on your journey, you actually feel quite isolated. And the job really is, let's put our arms around these wonderful people, show them how good they are at what they're doing and help them get just that little bit better. And I think if we can give them that message of hope, we can create the future that our children and our grandchildren are desperate for. Give me one place to go to for a farmer, a website that a farmer could go to for advice, for guidance, where to start. We work with a programme in Yorkshire, sponsored by Yorkshire Water, and part of that programme, they actually commissioned an online resource called the Good Soil Guide. Free to use, it's out there on the internet, sponsored by Yorkshire Water. Essentially, it's a, a farm knowledge base about soil and climate smart farming it's topics it's not prescriptive listing but it's topics of information it tells you a little bit about uh, some of the programs that are out there and how they're running it's developing all the time so at least going to get bigger and better and more informative but really in the palm of your hand you could have access to all you needed to know about farming transition to climate smart what it would mean to us how we could engage with it and I, I think that you know that is a super first place to go there are lots of others out there you've got regenerative agriculture you've got groundswell the groundswell youtube channel i would say go there have a look at that all their major presentations their keynote speakers they are all on there it's a lot easier than reading a book for me it's a lot nicer to see and hear these experts give their enthusiasm and their passion for 20 minutes or an hour on how these things actually work for them and i think from a farming point of view we really learn through experience we really learn through finding out what other people have done and resonating with that the groundswell youtube channel is a great place to pick up all those things what an excellent speaker that's neil fuller at the recent lincolnshire farming conference those websites neil mentioned soilguide.co.uk and the groundswell youtube channel Thank you, Neil. Links FM Farming. Market reports. Starting with livestock from Louth Market, auctioneer Ed Middleton. Good morning, Ed. Good morning, Steve. Uh, this week, 547 head sold. Uh, starting off uh, with the prime capital report, heifers all in average 277.45 pence per kilo and steers all in average 268 
0.03 pence per kilo. Top spot went to G.S. Paul of Borough La Marche at £2,220 or 272.5 pence per kilo. In the pence per kilo were F. Wallace and Son of Biscothorpe at 309.5. Steers, GNS Paul of Borough Marsh at £2,180. Uh, that concludes the prime cattle. Moving on to the cool cows. Top price this week were R. Carlton and Sons of Hatton, topping at a fantastic £1,736.25, which is equivalent to 231.5 pence per kilo. Just a quick reminder before we move on to the sheep, our next store cattle sale is on Monday the 4th of March. A uh, fantastic entry of hogs this week with uh, 450. Not as much weight about this week, which is going to reflect in this week's average. Many pens in the 300 to 320 pence per kilo bracket. The SQQ this week was 300.46 pence per kilo and an all-in average of 297.91 pence per kilo. Top spot this week goes to J.A. and R. and C.J. Jackson of Osgaby at £180. And in the pence per kilo, R. Drinkall of Louth at £376 per kilo. Moving on to the cool use, this week we had an average of £105.62 pence with a top price this week of £170 from A&N Spillman and son of Lincoln. Use in the coming weeks will be in big demand, so please support with your entries. And just a quick reminder, on Saturday the 16th of March, we have our Farmers Spring Collective Sale of Agricultural and Livestock Equipment. The closing date for entries is fast approaching, so if you're thinking of entering, please do get in touch with any entries you might have. I'm Edward Middleton, auctioneer at Louth Livestock Market. Thanks, Ed. And with this week's look at the grain market, Open Fields' Alice Killam. Morning, Alice. Good morning, Steve. News filtered down early this week that Prime Minister Rishi Sunak suggested at the NFU conference in Birmingham that as farmers, we're doing the job for love and not for the money. Over the last few weeks, as we battle the weather as well as a truly dreadful run with prices, I'm not sure there is much love for it either at the moment. To the markets then for this week. We have seen a little green at very long last. Is this the bottom or is this just profit taking as funds covered a portion of their motif short this week? Let's not get carried away though. We are not going to see a huge bounce in my own opinion. The headlines still illustrate that the market is being led by cheap Ukrainian produce. And don't be fooled into thinking that the Russians have been completely frozen out. They have a minimum price in the official tenders which are being quoted, but it is clear that there is private business taking place where the Russians have dropped well below this. Until the produce runs out, or there is a different story to change the direction, I fear we'll be looking for the profit-taking days to cover some of what there is left to sell. There are a couple of weather stories which need commenting on. In Russia and the Black Sea, there is very little snow cover, but it is being widely reported that a cold snap is on its way. This won't help old crop, but it could aid the narrative on new crop. So, a little closer to home, I'm cautious not to talk too much about the rain pouring down over our own heads. I appreciate that our 24-25 prices will only be based on what it costs to bring the replacement in, but to my mind, they're going to need quite a bit. This week's uptick in futures has cancelled out a poor day or two. My only urge is that you keep a close eye on futures and take the opportunity to trade a little when we do see a move up. For old crop, I don't see a better option at the moment, so stick with plodding along so you're not left in a muddle at the end. If you can and it makes sense to roll produce forward, then try and sell the current carry. This is currently best exposed in feed grains. New crop trading will depend very much on what you have planted and how it's looking, and obviously this will vary farm to farm. 
What we do know is that next year could be another bumpy ride. We're not guaranteed higher prices, although ideally hope for some. In general though, something a little bit more positive about this week. We must hope for some more short covering in the coming days, small steps. Some prices for this week then. Feed wheat, March 155 to 165. November 175 to 185, with Group 1 milling premiums still holding up to £70. Feed barley, May 135 to 145, and November 140 to 150. Finally this week for all seed rape, February 335 to 340, and July 340 to 345. As usual, please call for firm values. Thanks as ever, Alice. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. A cooler week by the look of it, with temperatures more normal for the time of year and not much rain. Hurrah! Expect some frosts as overnight lows dip to two or three degrees. Daytime highs will be around seven or eight. Winds look light and variable, apart from Monday when they'll be gusty and from the northeast. Next week, we'll talk slurry, potatoes and much more of the week in agriculture. 7am next Sunday on the radio at Lynx FM or whenever you like on the app, online, all podcast platforms or ask your smart speaker to play the farming programme from Apple Podcasts. I'm Steve Orchard. Until then, have a great week. The Farming Programme with Araquip Steel Stockholders with Embrook Industrial Estate Grantham. BSI ISO 9001 accredited.